Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> Kia ora everybody, I'm Jordan, host of the Kiwi Birth Tales podcast. It's my hope that you find support and comfort in these stories, and I'm really looking forward to bringing you today's episode. Just a reminder before we get started that these are personal experiences and you should always seek medical advice before making any important decisions. I'm not an advocate for any particular model of birth or birth care, and this is simply a platform to share these empowering Kiwi birth tales with you all. This week's episode is brought to you by Temple & Co, an online boutique sourcing the best natural products for your skin, bath and body, hair, baby and your home. A bit of information about Temple & Co. They're a New Zealand-owned company sourcing the best quality premium brands that are non-toxic, natural ingredient-based and organic products made with love. They believe in self-care and they think that there's not enough time for it in our busy lives. We need to make wellness a priority and take good care of ourselves and our families. If you're looking for something for yourself or as a gift for a new mum, they have a wonderful selection of natural products that they've fallen in love with and they know you will too. For Kiwi Birth Tales listeners, they're running a baby gift pack giveaway, which includes a forage and bloom nurture tea, especially created for pregnant and new mums, an organic magnesium and lavender baby wash, and an organic little sleep spray from the Base Collective. Head to the Kiwi Birth Tales Instagram to enter. If you'd like to follow Temple & Co on Instagram, you can do that at temple Co underscore nz, or on Facebook, templeandco.nz or the website www.templeandco.nz. Thanks again, Temple & Co, for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I really appreciate it. In today's episode, I speak with Heather, and she takes us through her two birth stories with her son, Alex, and daughter, Lucy. Now, Heather has a jam-packed episode. She is an obstetrician herself, so she has, um, yeah, I guess the medical view as well as being a pregnant and birthing mother. Her first birth was a caesarean section. She was actually induced at 37 weeks due to heavy bleeding, which she had experienced uh, previously in her pregnancy. So she takes us through that and then also their journey with low blood sugars, jaundice and feeding with a supplementary nursing system. That also inspired Heather's journey to become a lactation consultant, which is really awesome and she's doing that at the moment. Heather then takes us through the loss of their second pregnancy, which was yeah really, really tough for Heather and her family. And then she talks us through falling pregnant with Lucy. So really different pregnancy to her first without the complications of bleeding or anything like that. She talks through antenatal expressing of colostrum and then she takes us through her VBAC at 40 weeks and 5 days. She ended up having no pain relief and only 6 pushes until Lucy was in the world. So yeah, two different birth stories yeah couldn't quite be more opposite but really lovely to hear the contrast and hear the talks through how healing her second birth with Lucy was really lovely episode she also talks about their co-sleeping journey and what her breastfeeding journey was like the second time around so really grateful to Heather for joining me on the podcast I will stop talking now and and let Heather get into it hi Heather thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today thank you for having me 
No problem. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about you and who's in your family? So I'm Heather Johnston. I am a GP based in Wellington. Um, Prior to being a GP, I've been a doctor in obstetrics and gynecology for several years. Um, I am married to Matt, who is training to be a geriatrician. So between the two of us, we kind of (laughs) cover everything from the cradle (laughs) to the grave, really. Um, And we have two children. We've got Alex, who will be four by the time this gets released, because it's his birthday next week. And we've got Lucy, who is 20 months. Yeah, awesome. And I know you're also doing a little bit of um, training on the side at the moment. Do you want to talk yes. us through that? Yes. So I am also doing some training towards becoming a internationally board certified lactation consultant. And once I've kind of ticked that box, I'm going to also do some um, work on something called the Possums Program, which is... Um, <clears throat> focusing a lot on kind of maternal and infant mental health and sleep and feeding and kind of everything that encompasses motherhood really. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I look forward to um, seeing what comes of that. Very exciting. Thank you. Cool. And do you want to talk us through what the journey was like to pregnancy for you guys the first time around? Sure. So we were pretty lucky really with our journey to pregnancy. We got married in May of 2015 I think we started trying to get pregnant a month or two after that um, and were pregnant by October Um, so it was pretty uncomplicated for us in terms of the getting pregnant part (laughs) Um, and yeah for that I'm quite quite thankful because I know that that is definitely nothing to take for granted. Yeah yeah for sure and how did you find out that you were pregnant did you miss a period or you had other symptoms? So I am kind of one of those naughty people that tests well before your period <laughs> is actually due. Um, yeah. Partly because I know that you, you can test a few days early and partly because I'm impatient um, and really just wanted to know. So we had been on holiday um, in the South Island visiting some friends and I'd been you know, making sure not to, not to drink just in case and you know, being really cautious and we got home. And I, it was, you know, it was bedtime, it was nine o'clock or something. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to do a test. I think my period's due in like, I don't know, four or five days. Like it was, it was well, <laughs> well early. <laughs> um, I was like, oh, I'm just going to do a test just in case. Cause I've got, I've got an inkling and the faintest of faint second lines came up on, on <laughs> that test. And I kind of leapt into bed and I was like, Matt, look, look, it's positive. And he was just like, what is it really? It doesn't, doesn't look like anything on there. I was like, definitely positive. There's definitely two lines there. Oh my God, I'm pregnant. Um, so yeah, I was, I tested very early. Um, and obviously there was probably just like the tiniest sniff of pregnancy hormone in there enough <laughs> to turn it positive, but yeah. yeah, it was, it was exciting. Yeah. Awesome. And how were you feeling in your first trimester? Did you have any morning sickness or other sort of pregnancy symptoms in those first 12 weeks? Yeah. So basically from, from the get go, things started to kind of get a little bit complicated. So did that test at like nine o'clock on whatever night it was. The next day woke up with bleeding and it was, it was significant bleeding. It was enough bleeding that I thought that whatever possible snip of a pregnancy was there was ended and I had 
someone's baby shower to go to that day and it was like beautiful mm. celebrating her pregnancy but I was convinced that mine was ending at the same time yeah and so I just kind of grieved for that over the course of the the next week and then was like hang on I still feel I feel kind of squiffy and not quite right so I'm just gonna do another test and that one was convincingly positive like the line was the line was dark <laughs> the second time around a week later um luckily I hadn't you know drowned my sorrows in the bottle of a yeah. bottle of wine but <laughs> um you know it was convincingly positive so at that stage I would have been four and a half five weeks pregnant and so I contacted a midwife um and working in the hospital in obstetrics I had worked with most if not all of the um LMC midwives in my area so I kind of had the the inside knowledge and who I mm -hmm. really wanted to be my my person and so I I called her and she was you know, discreet but excited <laughs> <laughs> and we arranged to do some um, hormone tests just to check and, and see what the levels were doing because of the early bleeding and also do a an early dating scan to get a bit of an idea as to if the baby was sticking and what it was up to um, and that all kind of was fine and the hormone level was doubled as they needed to. I had a little bit more spotting over the next couple of weeks, um, but it, it settled down pretty quickly um, in terms of that bleeding side of things. I was quite nauseated um, throughout the first trimester and that was not made easy by my job. Um, I remember texting my midwife and being like, do you have any tips for how I can get through first trimester nausea? Hmm. Um, like while I'm on night shift particularly <laughs> and so working on delivery suite with other women having their babies um and working in in theaters for other women who were losing their babies um while I was feeling atrocious in the middle of the night was definitely a kind of a low point in in that pregnancy and I had night shifts every six weeks or so um until my third trimester so my first one was at, mm -hmm. at six weeks so at 6 12 18 24 <laughs> and they they didn't get easier but they in terms of the how I could cope with them physically but they did get easier later on when people actually knew that I was pregnant and yeah. understand why I was <laughs> so terrible um, <laughs> the other kind of big thing that happened in first trimester was about 11 weeks I was at work um on a on a long day shift so it was evening and I had just run a, a woman whose baby was in trouble um, round to theatre for a caesarean section and so would put her to sleep and I was doing her caesarean and felt that kind of unmistakable feeling of, of bleeding, um, that, that kind of wet that you feel running down your legs and I was like, oh my gosh, why is this happening to me now? Like, <laughs> I've got a woman and a baby that I need to look after. These, these people are top priority. But my mind was was somewhere else and uh, yeah I had another significant bleed at 11 weeks obviously before anybody else knew that I was pregnant um luckily I had a friend that worked in the same job as me and I could call her in absolute floods of tears from the toilet at work after the um after the cesarean being like I'm I'm bleeding I need somebody to come in and take over because I can't keep working like this and she bless her heart she came in and took over for me and she also did a quick scan um before I left to confirm that baby was alive and wriggling but yeah just a, a significant 
bleed from what turned out to be a, a subchorionic hematoma, which is surprisingly common um, yeah. for a lot of women. So it was an eventful first trimester. <laughs> um, <laughs> but after that, things kind of mostly settled down, really. Yeah. And so was that an issue throughout your whole pregnancy, the bleeding, or did it sort of subside that, after the first trimester? Yeah. After the first trimester, it subsided until right at the end. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that big bleed at, at 11 weeks was um, was the last bleeding that I had right up until um, it was time to have have the baby. <laughs> yeah. And did they have to do it? Like, did you have to do anything different to manage that at all? No. Um, there's it's kind of the the kind of bleeding that you just have to to kind of keep going with really there's nothing that you can do to to stop it if it's going to happen it and yeah I just kind of had to had to keep pushing through and luckily there wasn't any more bleeding like that and and particularly not in such kind of dramatic circumstances as well (laughs) yeah yeah and did you choose to do the sort of standard testing that's offered in New Zealand throughout your pregnancy as well yeah, I did. So I did the um, first trimester screening and all the diabetes checks, which was fun with trying to fit it around <laughs> around work. Um, I yeah, and I, I also had quite a few extra scans throughout the pregnancy because of the bleeding. Um, yeah. I had extra growth scans throughout the second and third trimester, and my placenta was low lying at the twenty week scan, so already kind of needed to an extra scan to check that was moving out of the way, which it had, which was good. And it wasn't yeah. anything related to the bleeding. It was just something else. I had all these plans to be a, you know, a low risk, normal, beautiful, <laughs> healthy pregnancy. And it kind of all went out the window from the first day after my positive yeah. pregnancy test. <laughs> but yeah, at least the, the second and third trimester were pretty uneventful. And it was really, really nice once people actually knew that I was pregnant and yeah. midwives that I worked with were were beautiful and congratulatory and everyone's very excited when there's someone that's pregnant who works with pregnant women so it's yeah yeah, it was was really nice yeah awesome and did you find out the sex while you were pregnant we did but we told people that we hadn't (laughs) because I (laughs) especially as much as I love midwives at work they they wanted to know and they always asked me so I always told Mm -hmm. them that I didn't know um because I knew if I told them that I did know and I was keeping it a secret that I'd um be hassled so I told people that we didn't know even though it was very very obvious at our 20 week scan that we were having a little boy (laughs) yeah awesome (laughs) and did you do sort of any birth education or antenatal classes or anything like that or because of your job maybe didn't feel like it was necessary yeah so I yeah I did do um do antenatal classes and took my husband with me um we were trying really hard to be normal parents like we obviously had a different kind of knowledge and a different kind of role within the system and I was trying really hard and my midwife made a point of you know affirming to me that I needed to try really hard to be normal and just to be a mum and not to be a doctor um which was hard when you know things kind of became complicated at various times but she was my midwife was really good at just saying you're a mum stop talking like a doctor just be Mm -hmm. a mum um so we did antenatal classes and we made some really good good friends through antenatal classes. It was quite hard um, from our medical perspective to be in those classes sometimes. Like I feel there's a lot of um, a lot of focus on normal, which is great, but also mm-hmm. 
a lot of focus on you know this cascade of intervention and the kind of negative role that medicine and doctors can play in birth and that was quite hard for me being someone that Mm -hmm. tries really hard to keep things as normal and as mum and baby focused as possible um and you know I know that intervention exists but I also know why it exists and and when it is needed and it's not something Mm. anyone ever enters into lightly so it was it was hard at times to kind of sit there and listen to people being quite negative towards um the obstetric intervention side of things yeah um we tried to keep our identities secret but that didn't last more than two classes (laughs) because I couldn't help myself um (laughs) trying to kind of correct things and offer different perspectives and things because you know just little things like yeah. not, not really wanting to talk much about epidurals or pain relief and I was like actually people need to know about this stuff because yeah for sure a lot of people a lot of people need it and yeah. you know, a lot of people need cesareans and need instrumental deliveries and it's more scary and traumatic not to have any knowledge about any of that no, stuff happens to you than to have the teaching beforehand so yeah I we outed ourselves within a, a couple of classes <laughs> and I think that was actually probably quite good because it meant that um some of the content was kind of changed slightly to be less negative about obstetric <laughs> doctors yeah. yeah awesome and did you have many thoughts around a birth plan or how you might want your birth to go yeah so I always knew that I wanted to birth in a hospital and that was because that's where I was comfortable partly because it was where I worked but also because of the nature of my job is that I saw all the things that you know that could go wrong um midwives are the absolute specialists in normal and I think they're amazing and incredible people and obstetric doctors are kind of the specialists in the things that go wrong so I didn't have much experience in the normal so that's kind of what drove me to be like, yeah, I'm definitely having my birth in a, in a hospital just in case. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to keep things as normal as possible within that environment. So I wanted to labor at home for as long as I could before coming in. And I had planned on a, a vaginal birth and going home you know, as soon as I could afterwards and breastfeeding and skin to skin and everything that was as as normal and um unexciting as it possibly could have been really (laughs) I wanted to kind of come in at at eight centimeters push a baby out and go home again and just be a kind of birthing rock star and (laughs) people may may realize that this is not how things went at all (laughs) yeah yeah awesome and did you do anything in sort of preparation for birth like I know there's hundreds of things that people say can induce labor so were you buying into any of those or did you do antenatal expressing or anything like that yeah so I did do antenatal expressing um from about 36 weeks and I ended up with I think seven seven mils of colostrum that I took to the hospital with me awesome um I also did some like perineal massage pelvic floor training things with a device called an epino I don't know if yeah, anyone's spoken about these before too. but yeah <laughs> you use one of those too yeah so it's like a little balloon that you can put into the vagina and kind of gently inflate um to try and stretch the tissue and kind of get a bit of a sensation about what that like stinging ring of fire kind of sensation feels like and the evidence behind that is that it can reduce 
the risk of tearing, particularly in first-time mums. So I did that because I didn't want, want to tear if I could possibly avoid it. The main book that I read in terms of preparation was um, Juju Sundin's oh, cool. Birth Skills book, which I felt found really good, um, again, to try to make me behave like a normal person and not a doctor <laughs> yeah. and you know learn the ways to manage birth, birthing pain and labor pain that gave me some control over my own body and I found her book really helpful for that just for yeah. practical tips yeah awesome and did your labor end up starting spontaneously do you want to take us through sort of your initial labor experience so I was 37 weeks and four days pregnant and I had been on maternity leave for a few days but I've been like I'd been super busy I've been doing all the all the things I've been getting you know home ventilation installed I've been um I've been to Wellington and back from Palmerston North for a, an interview and I'd been like cooking up all my freezer meals and stuff and so it was my first day where I was like right I'm gonna stop I'm just gonna have a quiet day and then tomorrow I'm gonna go and like get my get a pregnancy massage and get my nails mm-hmm. done and like nice stuff so I had my first day of proper maternity leave and got myself a cup of tea and got my book and then got back into bed after my husband had gone to work and opened my book. And then I like felt a gush. I was like, oh, well, that's really not very fair. <laughs> I was like, I wonder if like, have I peed myself? Have I had my waters broke? Like what's going on? And I kind of took my sheets off and I was like, okay, so that's, that's a lot of blood. That's not, that's not my waters. That's a lot of blood. And I kind of sat there for a few moments and I was like, oh okay, well, what am I going to do about this now? Yeah. <laughs> like, like had this kind of complete mind blank moment where I know that like if I was talking to someone as a doctor, I'd be like, if you've seen that amount of blood when you're 37 weeks pregnant, you call an ambulance and you mm. go to the hospital. <laughs> but, you know, I was like, I'm, I need to I need to strip bed. And so I got up and I like took the yeah. sheets off the bed and I put them in the washing and then I called my midwife and I was like, so this thing just happened. She's like, what? What's going on? <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you, why are you stripping the bed? Stop that. Um, you need to go to the hospital. And I was like, oh, yeah, probably. Oh, yeah, okay. Right, I should do that. <laughs> and so, like, I was kind of sitting there feeling feeling my belly and baby was wriggling around. And I was like, well, this, this is good. Okay, I'll put, put a pad on and I'll go to the hospital. And I put my bags on my shoulders and I started walking to the hospital. So oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and my midwife luckily knows me well and she was just like, she she works quite close to the hospital. She knew exactly what I was up to. So she swung past my house and she picked me up. She was like, I know you're going to walk. What are you doing? <laughs> and so she brought me, in, brought me into the hospital and um, arrived on delivery suite. And obviously everybody there knows me. Um, so I kind of had this kind of moment of being like, oh, I'm going to have to see my colleagues about my, my bleeding and my, my labor that's well, my, I wasn't in labor at that stage, but my bleeding and all was a little bit awkward, but my colleagues were great and they were beautiful and they just kind of surrounded me in just care and love. And it wasn't weird at all that I had to get my colleagues to do speculum exams on me to see what was happening with the bleeding. And another colleague was putting in an IV line and somebody else was doing my CTG for baby. And like, they were all just beautiful and professional and loving. And it was, yeah, it was a safe place to be not entirely sure what caused the bleeding but it was kind of still ongoing um when I was in the hospital and it was coming through the cervix so something kind of higher up um baby was a bit you know tachycardic as was I when we arrived probably because I just like tried to walk myself with my free bags <laughs> to the hospital <laughs> but we were all okay um 
and so I was like okay this is good like everything's checking out okay I'll probably just be here for the night and then I'll go home again and then a couple of the consultants came in and were like so let's talk about induction and I was like what and logically again now I think about it once you're over kind of 37 weeks and you have mm-hmm. a lead, the safest place for your baby is probably coming out rather than staying in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I had just, I had, my, I had just not at all thought about having an induction of labor at that point. I was convinced that I was going to be normal and go home and come back at eight centimeters and push a baby out and go home. <laughs> but no. So they talked with me about induction and we decided to just kind of, get on with it really um and so we started an induction that night um I had spoken to obviously because I I worked worked there I'd spoken to a couple of the specialist obstetricians before going on maternity leave and had talked to one in particular that I had asked him if you know if I needed any help that was above the scope of practice of a midwife you know if I needed a cesarean or you know whatever would he be my person and so he kindly agreed to be my person and so then I really threw a spanner in the works at him and decided to have a antepartum hemorrhage at 37 <laughs> weeks and so he had to manage my <laughs> distress about having an induction about that so he is very calm and collected and come talk to me through what we we're going to do as though I was just a normal person and we decided to do a induction using a cervical catheter um just because if there was a bleed and baby was potentially going to be distressed and we wanted something that we could take out yeah. um, and reverse if if need be. So not the gel or tablets and things, just something that we could could take out. So he came back um, later that night to put the, the catheter in. And at that stage, my cervix was long and closed and when I say closed, I mean really, really closed. It did mm-hmm. not want a cervical catheter in it at all. <laughs> um, so poor guy did did my cervical catheter. I tried very hard not to kick him in the head. I think I succeeded. Mm. <laughs> and so I kind of tucked up for, for the night of um, waiting to see if that would, would get me to the point in the morning where my waters could be broken. And so I slept on, on delivery suite that night and I didn't really sleep very much. I had some pain relief at one stage and kind of niggled on and off all night, which not very comfortable um, and was quite a strange kind of environment to be in. Like it was again, familiar, but unfamiliar and being the, the pregnant woman in the bed. Um, at one stage, I remember an emergency bell went off in a different room and I like leapt out of bed and went to the door before realizing that actually I was in my pajamas and had a catheter in my cervix and couldn't go and be of any assistance to any kind of emergency. Um, but that kind of instinct to, to run to the emergency bell was still obviously quite strong because apparently all of my like sensible parts of my brain had become completely disengaged <laughs> at this end of pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, so that induction kind of all all kicked off and the next morning um my boss slash obstetrician um examined me and found that I was four centimeters um after that night of niggly pain so at least it had done what it needed to do um but baby's head was really really high up um and his little hand was just just on top of his head so he was kind of just like lying there with his hand curled on top of his head um decided to 
to break my waters, hoping that the hand would move out the way and get things going with the um, synthetic oxytocin. So things weren't kind of going as you know nice and normally as I had planned at this stage. Um, <laughs> um, my veins are also notoriously very difficult, so we had to get a consultant anaesthetist in to try and put a, a cannula in me to get the oxytocin started. And it took multiple attempts to actually get the line in to start the medication to start labour. So it was a long morning of repeated um, IV line attempts and then eventually kind of getting going. Um, <clears throat> and then it was a long eight hours of um, increasing doses of, of oxytocin because things weren't really weren't really happening. My, like I was 37 mm. weeks, my body wasn't really ready to have mm. a baby yet. My mind wasn't really ready to have a baby yet, mm-hmm. and things just kind of didn't really, really change. So I was four centimeters in the morning, and then I was four centimeters four hours later, and I was still four centimeters four hours after that, with the continuously increasing doses of, mm-hmm. of oxytocin, and still quite a high baby, and still that little hand felt in front of his head. And we kind of got to the point like eight, of eight hours of of labor with no pain relief and. Um, no change and we're like, oh, what are we going to do now like <laughs> we've kind of maxed out on the doses of of the oxytocin nothing's really happening what happens next and so at that stage we decided to get an epidural um, because whatever needed to happen next would need some pain relief so whether that was going to be needing a cesarean whether that was going to be like trying to do anything else we're going to need some pain relief to do it so my husband had previously worked with the anesthetic team so he he phoned a friend um, and got a a, a, an anesthetist that he knew and liked to come in and do my epidural and that was all very quick as well like I was quite I didn't really want an epidural I was quite scared of the whole idea of an epidural and the um like the process of having it done which is funny considering like that I'm you know medically trained and have seen and participated in all those kind of things before professionally but I was quite scared of the whole idea of an epidural and it, the way that it happened was quite fast um in the end because the synesthetist had come in from home um he wasn't re- he wasn't on call he just got called in by my husband um and he came in and he did the epidural and it was very quick and then it was very comfortable (laughs) and after that I was like oh this is this is quite good like part of me was like maybe I should have done this like four hours ago um but at that stage I was not planning on being in labor for the entire day and still being at at four centimeters dilated so I had my had my pain relief and then had an examination by my midwife and everything was still the same still four centimeters still a hand in front of the head so she called in a registrar who was the same kind of um, job as what I would do. So she was one of my close colleagues and she was like, is it all right if I examine you as well? And I was like, oh, whatever. <laughs> I'm kind of at the point now where I'm just, just, please just do what needs to be done. And so she examined and she was like, oh, let me just see if I can move that hand out of the way. And so she, she gave it a go and he was not moving his hand out of the way at all. Um, so she decided to call the boss. He came in and he he made me very thankful that I had an epidural on board because there was a lot of rummaging um, and he was he was like well, I think we've you know we've got a good shot of a vaginal birth if we can just get him to move his hand so got him to move his hand um which was great 
And so as soon as his hand got moved out of the way, his head came down and then I was nine centimeters. And, but as soon as that happened, the baby was like, nope, nope, I'm not going to participate in this anymore. And so he just like, he dropped his heart rate right down, um, had a quite a long bradycardia. So a long period of his heart rate being quite low, um, which is where I found myself on the receiving end of all the emergency measures that I had done to a lot of other people. So the oxygen and the emergency bell and rolling onto my side and having some medication to stop the contractions and all the things to kind of get the baby's heart rate to try and come back up again. And it slowly did. Um, and it recovered for a little while, but the CTG heart rate tracing was still looking pretty poor. So the obstetrician decided to do a sample off the top of baby's head, a blood sample off the top of baby's head to see just kind of how, how stressed the baby really was. Um, and I remember sitting there listening to kind of the CTG monitor, just like slowly going tap, 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 just being like, oh, that heart rate's not very good. <laughs> and trying to disengage my doctor, doctor brain, yeah. oh, that heart rate's not very good. People being like, oh, that's actually my baby, that's heart rate is not very good. And I turned to my husband and saying, so this is what's happening and this is what the numbers are going to mean. So when he does the sample, if the numbers are below this, then you know, we're just going to continue. And if they're above this, then probably going to need a cesarean and he was like okay okay and we did the sample and the result came back really high um for those of you that are listening that um know the numbers it was a lactate sample and it was 5.3 so it was very very high um and I turned to my husband and I said okay so this means we're going for an an emergency cesarean right now right now and so people ran my bed around to the theater um and people moved very very quickly to get me into into the operating theater and I think I turned my um my boss quite gray in the Mm. time that it took to kind of get there and get get sorted um and it was scary it was scary being on the on the bedside of a cesarean section Mm. like I've done lots of cesarean sections on people but being the one who it was done to was was scary and it was and it made it a lot more real I think um like just little moments that I remember like having the theater lights pulled over the top of my head and being having my arm stretched out onto the um the boards beside me and having my epidural topped up and being like please make sure that it's okay because I'm really scared that it's gonna not be not be enough medicine and I'm gonna feel things and it's one of those moments where I, like, up until that time, I'd been quite pleased that I'd had known a lot about what was happening. But when I hit hit the cesarean table, I was like, actually, at this point, I don't, I'd quite like to not know exactly what's going on down there. <laughs> so the heart rate had kind of improved a bit by the time we got to, got to theatre. So they topped up my epidural rather than putting me to sleep, which was great because I was terrified of going to sleep as well. And... I got the shakes as people do with, mm. with epidurals. Um, I got terrible shakes and I found it like I remember seeing people moving my legs around and feeling it was so weird that I didn't have any sensation that my legs were being moved around. I could just see it. And then my baby was born like, you know, pretty quickly after we got there and just had that feeling of someone pushing on my tummy to get my baby out. And my baby was born and he cried immediately. And 
it was just the most kind of surreal amazing moment just hearing him cry mm. and knowing that despite everything that had taken that day to get there that he was okay yeah and my, my husband was standing up taking photos over the top of the drape which I'm so thankful for because now I can kind of I got photos that I can see my baby being born um and he he came out and he had the like the roundest head that was obviously just not coming out mm. that he'd been having his hand up against the whole course of the day and it was all kind of swollen and been pushed up against his hand and pushed up against my cervix and it was just obviously just not gonna not gonna budge not gonna come out vaginally yeah. <laughs> um but he was he was born and he was beautiful and I was very very thankful that we were both okay yeah yeah, awesome. And how long did you end up spending in the hospital? So we kind of had two parts to our hospital stay, really. Um, so he was born at 37 weeks and five days. Um, by that stage, it was 11 o'clock at night when he was born. And so he was you know, what you'd kind of call a late preterm or early term baby at 37 weeks. Um, and with all the the stress of of labor and and his birth he dropped his blood sugars um on the first night like within a couple of hours of being born really they dropped his blood sugars um and used all the colostrum that i had expressed mm -hmm. antenatally um within a, within a few hours of being born um and then needed some dextrose sugar gel and some and then some formula as well which is a whole kind of other side of my story. Mm. <laughs> um, and so kind of from that, from that moment, really, he needed some extra support with his feeding. Um, and he also got jaundiced um, in that first week of life as well. So we, once we had kind of eventually made it home after, I think it was three days, um, he got increasingly jaundiced and needed to be readmitted on, on the day after we'd come home mm. and we were ended up being in hospital until the end of his first week of life, really with him on, on a billy blanket in the um, postnatal ward, trying to get his jaundice cleared yeah. for three days um, and lots of, of feeding stuff as well. Yeah. And how did you find sort of once you left the hospital after being readmitted and, you're at home as as a new mum and, and new parents. How yeah. did you find that initial postnatal period? It was huge. Like I don't think my job had definitely not prepared me for it. Yeah. <laughs> um and antenatal classes had not really prepared me for it. And I was one of the first first people kind of in my my cohort or my group of friends that had a baby. So I didn't really have many people to to talk to about yeah. how things were going. I think also coming from quite a professional, like in control kind of a job to suddenly being at home, like once Matt had gone back to work, I was at home on my own with this new baby from six weeks mm. and being completely at the mercy of this small creature. Like it was quite, it was quite a big shift in like in me. Um, I didn't, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't really expecting motherhood to like completely change me which it has and I found that quite hard to to kind of come to terms with in those those early weeks that everything everything had changed it wasn't just that I kind of came home to to my house with a baby and yeah. then we'd kind of fit the baby in it was just 
everything was now about about the baby and about the recovery and about kind of learning this new person and learning who I was now in relation to this new little person. Yeah. And I think like my, my feeding journey also kind of played into that a lot as well, because like from, from the beginning in in hospital from that kind of first night where he received formula top ups um, with his low sugars to the next day when we went up to the maternity ward and one of the nurses kind of took a look at me, look at me and was like, mm, from the look of the shape of your breasts, I wonder if you might not be able to breastfeed. Oh. And just, just kind of, I had this kind of moment of just being like, okay, so we've got like, oh, okay. This is not something that I had ever mm-hmm. anticipated, like not being able to. This is just not something that happens, surely. Like, pe- surely people can, if they, what? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and so I kind of had this seed of doubt planted from within the first kind of 12 hours of my child's life um, that I might not be able to breastfeed. And so that kind of, on one side it was devastating, but on the other side it made me really, really determined and really mad mm. to be like, right, I'm going to show these people, I'm going to show everyone and I'm just going to do it. And so basically what she meant from what she, like from from that comment was that it looked, from the look of my breasts, it looked like I might not have enough glandular tissue to make a full milk supply for my baby. Mm-hmm. So feeding was always going to kind of be a challenge. And the challenge added into that was the fact that he'd received formula from a few hours old and he was small, like he wasn't small, he was early and then he got jaundiced. And so he wasn't feeding as well or as efficiently or as often as he probably should have. Um, but it was, it became kind of my, my passion to like, and my drive to try to make sure that I could feed him as much as I possibly could because I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to give up on that because that was something that I really, really wanted to do. Yeah. And I had people kind of tell people around me saying, oh, you, you can, you know, you can just stop if it's hard, you can just stop. And I, I know for some people that's, that is probably really helpful to hear that kind of permission that it's okay to stop if you, if you need to. But for me, it just kind of drove me to be like, oh, I'm not going <laughs> to stop. <laughs> I'm not going to stop. I'm going to, I'm going to give it absolutely everything everything I can possibly throw at it, despite the fact that I didn't really get much in the way of support for breastfeeding. I think a lot of the, a lot of the staff at the hospital assumed I probably knew more about it than I did. Mm. And so I was left alone. I left alone a lot for a lot of my feeding and kind of figured it out a lot on my own along the way as well. And what I ended up doing was getting a supplemental nursing system or an SNS which is like a, a bottle that you can fill with whatever kind of milk you're needing to use, so express milk or donor milk or formula. And in Alex's case, um, it was formula and giving him, um, and it's got little tubes that you can tape onto onto your nipple basically. And so he gets the top up at the breast at the same time as breastfeeding. Yeah. And so that meant that I could kind of, keep going with the with the breastfeeding even if I wasn't going to make a full supply myself I could feed him I could breastfeed him as much as every drop that I could make I could breastfeed him and he could feed at the breast as much as he possibly could and so we we did that for 
oh, just over two years in the end. He breastfed for yeah, amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that was like my my big my big push really with him was to make sure that I could could breastfeed and that now that's one of the reasons that I'm doing my lactation consultant yeah. training as well was to try and you know, not let some of the things that happen to me happen to other people. Yeah. Because there should there should be better help out there and there should be better awareness out there as well. And um and one of the things that I've learned is that doctors really don't know much at all about mm. breastfeeding. There is no breastfeeding teaching in our curriculum. <laughs> there is not really any breastfeeding training for qualified doctors. And so that's one of my kind of areas of passion as well is actually teaching doctors that yeah. more about breastfeeding because people like women rely on doctors' opinions for that kind of stuff a lot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I was kind of able to turn turn my my tr- my struggles into kind of a new a new passion, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool. And how did you find sort of if we go back a little bit your um, physical recovery yeah. from your C section? So I was. I was pretty good, I think. Um, I was up having a shower. So my sister was at, I was at, ugh. Alex was born at 11.10 at night and I was up having a shower at like eight o'clock the next morning and just kind of pottering around the ward after that. And then when we got home on day three, had like a terrible night because in hindsight he was really, really hungry. Um, and then the next day um, was we're kind of coming, planning to come back into hospital um, because he was jaundiced and then our car wouldn't start. Oh no. So <laughs> we lived, I think oh, it was probably a 10 minutes walk for a non recently emergently sur- surgery person. <laughs> we lived, yeah, about 10 minutes walk from the hospital. And so I walked from our house to the hospital with my newborn baby on day four after a cesarean, which in hindsight, again, silly. Um, <laughs> but you, you kind of get that, that, you drive and you that you're like right my baby needs help and I need to get my mm. baby help so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna walk to the hospital so I was pretty knackered after that for a, for a couple yeah, of yeah. days um but apart from that the recovery was actually quite good yeah yeah awesome and how did you or did you sort of decide that you wanted to try for a second baby or what was that experience like yeah so we we always knew that we wanted more than one um more than one baby and we got to, I think it was Alex's first birthday and got to the point where we were like, actually, yep, yeah, a second baby will be pretty good. <laughs> um, I knew that I needed to kind of give, give my scar like 12 to 18 months to heal, to um, be strong enough for a second pregnancy. Um, so we started trying for another baby a couple of months after Alex's birthday um, and got pregnant pretty quickly um, in September of of that year. So when he was 15, 16 months old. Yeah. Um, well, we lost that that pregnancy, um, and that was that was really really hard. Um, I, I remember taking videos of me getting the positive pregnancy test and telling Alex that he was going to be a big brother, and then telling Matt. And I haven't been able to open those videos on my phone again mm. because it didn't it didn't work out um and yeah I was absolutely just heartbroken like it was a it was an early loss um but it was a huge loss and it took took a while before we kind of ready to start again 
Um, but we got, again, got pregnant quite quickly when we did start trying again. And so we were pregnant with Lucy when Alex was, I think, 19 months old. Yeah. Awesome. And how did you sort of feel in that pregnancy? Obviously, um, after a loss, you can sort of imagine the emotion that might come along with it. So how yeah. were you feeling emotionally? Yeah, so emotionally it was it was really hard, um, and particularly in the first trimester yeah. when you're just not not able to really trust that things are going to yeah. go to plan, um, and kind of every every twinge or yeah. every niggle that you're getting, you're like, oh, is this is this something going wrong? Is this the end of this pregnancy? Um, but again, like I had the same midwife that I had with Alex, and she was really good at just kind of reassuring me we did a couple of pregnancy hormone tests again just to give me some kind of concrete evidence that things were um were going the way that they were supposed to obviously you can't make any kind of long-term call based on a couple of um, hormone tests but at, at that stage it was what I needed just to kind of show me yes this the hormone levels are rising which means things are kind of going as much to plan as you can interpret from that um and then seeing seeing the heartbeat on the first scan was a huge relief because I knew that once you see a heartbeat your risks of losing that pregnancy go way down yeah. so that was a, a huge milestone for for me emotionally and um then the next kind of stage with the kind of 12, 12 week scans actually seeing seeing a, a baby that looks like a baby um, and then could kind of relax into it particularly once I started feeling movements I was more comfortable relaxing yeah. into thinking that things were probably going to be okay yeah I also scanned myself a couple of sneaky <laughs> times in the first trimester at work and I was like oh I can't feel any baby movement yet because it's too early but let's have a look and just make sure I don't know what I would have done if things hadn't been yeah. okay but I was just um, I was like, I'm just gonna have a look because I'm sure it'll be fine, and it was fine. And yeah, yeah again, silly thing to do, but <laughs> <laughs> but helped helped me at the time. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, awesome. And how were you feeling in this pregnancy physically? Was it much different to your first? And did you have the same bleeding issues, or what was that like? Yes, yeah, so I had no bleeding issues at all with Lucy. Like my pregnancy with her was like as normal as you could really get yeah. <laughs> which was great like I didn't didn't have any of that early bleeding didn't need the growth scans awesome. and, like didn't have any of the increased checking in which was quite weird for me as well because yeah. it's like that was my one experience of pregnancy was being kind of a little bit complicated and needing lots of checking in and then to kind of release that control and just be like okay so this is all going fine <laughs> I don't need scans every two to four weeks yeah. to see how my baby's going so I have to kind of let that go because that's not going to happen this time. It's just going to be normal. <laughs> um, I was not quite as sick with my pregnancy with Lucy, but I was more tired, I think, because I had a nearly two-year-old um, to to manage as well. So, yeah, that that was – I remember feeling absolutely knackered yeah. throughout my pregnancy with, with Lucy, just trying to manage a really busy yeah. toddler as well. Um, and I have a, a lot of respect for mums that, do that um more than once yeah. as well <laughs> yeah for sure and did you find out the sex of lucy's pregnancy 
Yeah, yeah. So we again did the same thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not going to be able to have another pregnancy now and without people knowing that this is what yeah. I do, so they find out what gender it is, yeah. and, and then I don't tell them, and I tell them that I don't know. Yeah, no one will um, believe you now. <laughs> yeah, no. But yeah, no, we did. We did find out, and I had suspicions that I knew what she was from a scan that I'd done on myself <laughs> in the early um, second trimester, but obviously couldn't confirm any of that until our anatomy scan. It, 20 weeks yeah. and yeah she was obviously a girl then as well so that was very exciting yeah um, I spent a lot of money on small small girl clothes yeah. <laughs> yeah awesome and did you have sort of many thoughts around what you wanted this birth to be like an elective c-section or were you going to try for a v-back what was that like yeah so it was a, a tricky kind of decision to make in some ways um but also a really easy one um so kind of what I mean by that is that like I had come from the obviously the background of of medicine and obstetrics and you know intervention and all that kind of thing so I had quite a lot of um a lot of reasons that an elective caesar would be a good option yeah. but I also had the kind of the main the main factor in my decision making was actually Alex so I I chose to aim for a V-back because I wanted to be away from him for as little time as possible um, and wanted to try to keep things as normal yeah. as possible as well. And I like I knew that I'd got to nine centimetres with, with his labour in the end once he'd moved his hand <laughs> out of the way. And so I knew that my, my body could labour um, some – I'd probably have a reasonable chance of having a successful VBAC if that's what I wanted. Yeah. So we decided to, to go for that. Um, it was one of those decisions that was, was hard sometimes along the way as well because I kind of got to particularly getting to the end of the pregnancy and being like, oh, it'd be quite nice to have this baby out like, <laughs> next week yeah. um, and have it planned and, and kind of know when that was going to happen and not have to, you know, wonder about when labor was going to start and all that kind of side of things but the that driving factor for me of wanting to aim to be home pretty quickly with Alex was was pretty strong yeah. yeah awesome and did you do anything in preparation for birth this time like epino again or antenatal mm. expressing anything like that yeah yeah so I did did both again I didn't do much with the epino I just yeah. kind of had, had had a few more goes with it and then I was like oh actually I can't really be bothered with this anymore <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> and did do the internet expressing so I started quite a lot earlier because I was breastfeeding Alex throughout pregnancy until I think must have been until I was maybe in my third trimester yeah. I was breast, still breastfeeding him um and and so I once he he got a cold I think around not long after his second birthday and then just kind of decided I didn't want to breastfeed anymore. Yeah. So he just kind of suddenly, suddenly stopped feeding. So I was like, well, okay, so I'm just going to express um, colostrum instead now that he's stopped feeding. Yeah. And so I ended up actually expressing 100 mils oh, awesome. of um, colostrum internationally <laughs> because I'd started quite early um, because I'd still had a little, like I'd had a little bit of stimulation from him yeah. feeding. Um and once I'd got to 100 mils, I decided that was that was kind of enough, yeah. and I could put that in the freezer, and I probably didn't need any more. So, 
um that was my <laughs> once i had kind of figured that that was actually you know a achievable target <laughs> <laughs> i stopped it stopped at that stage yeah. um so yeah so i had that on standby because i knew that things had been tricky with alex in terms of supply and the low blood sugars and the jaundice and so i wanted to have as much as i could yeah. for this baby just in case it was needed um i read the book again i read Juju sundin's book again um particularly focusing on the like pushing a baby out parts <laughs> which i'd never got to with um with alec um and did a few things like as i got closer to as i got to term um the i did some stretch and sweeps with my midwife and um did the you know the usual old wives tales of the evening primrose oil and the curb walking and all those kind of things. I didn't do the castor oil or any of that kind of stuff. I didn't want to give myself diarrhea and yeah. labor because I thought that would be terrible. <laughs> um, but yeah, did, did all those bits and, bits and pieces yeah. as well. So yeah, even, even doctors aren't immune to all those things. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And did you end up going into spontaneous labor this time around? Do you want to take us through that? Yeah. Yeah. So I had, I was kind of getting increasingly I guess anxious as the end of my pregnancy went on. Um, once I kind of got to 39 weeks and I was like, oh, if I'd just chosen to have a cesarean, I could have my baby yeah. in my arms by now. Um, I started to, I kind of lost the plot a little mm -hmm. bit. <laughs> and so um, I planned to have an induction at 40 weeks on my, like on, on my due date, um, just to try and manage that anxiety um it was kind of getting close to the one year anniversary of my miscarriage the year before and i'd had like professionally quite a lot of connection with loss in um in post-dates pregnancies yeah. and that was kind of messing with my head at that point um that that was particularly a couple of really memorable cases for me during my pregnancy with lucy that i had had managed of, of loss and post-dates pregnancies. And obviously this is something that happens so, so infrequently, yeah. but it was so poignant for me at that yeah. moment in my, in my journey that I was like, Oh, I think I need to get this baby out. So I planned an induction on my due date, just the same kind of deal, go in and have a, have a cervical catheter and have my waters broken the next morning. But, and I had everything kind of set up and my mum was there to look after Alex and we'd been out for lunch and it was all like, I was, I was ready. I had my head in the game and I was sorted. And then I think with about two hours notice, delivery suite called and we're like, oh, we're too busy. We can't accommodate your induction. And because it's kind of a, a non-medical <laughs> reason and it's a Thursday, like, I don't think it's, there's going to be any availability for Friday because it goes into the weekend. So maybe it'll happen on Monday. <laughs> and I would just, I just mm. lost, lost my shit, really. <laughs> I, I was so ready to meet my baby that I was just beside myself when this kind of plan that I had made for myself got pulled out from under me. And yeah, I was, I was heartbroken. I was just like, oh God, what if something like, what if something happens to my baby? What if I'm, I've made the wrong choice? And yeah, I'd, like fell to pieces really my husband had like had planned to be obviously having a baby on Thursday night Friday so he'd kind of started his parental leave so he was home with me for that Friday um and just kind of let me 
me grieve for the loss of my <laughs> labor really um at that point um I spent here a lot of the lot of time on the phone with the midwives on delivery suite and my own midwife and my obstetrician who was the same same guy that delivered Alex and I you know logically could understand why they would cancel the induction because it, you know it was not me that clean needed and it was busy and I could logically my my doctor brain could understand that but my mum brain was just like heartbroken <laughs> so so that was a really really tough time around around that my due date which which is is sad now to look back on that I kind of spent that time just like anxious and upset um but then the next the next day is Matt my husband he said right we're gonna have an oxytocin weekend we're gonna just like make this a really good weekend so he like he did things like um he did all the chores or everything that needed to be done around the house he was gonna do everything that needed to be done around the house and we went for walks in nature and he gave me back massages and head massages and he <laughs> he made me smoothies with like entire pieces of pineapple in <laughs> them um <laughs> it's apparently pineapple also juices labor but i don't know um so yeah he, he made a, a real effort to make my my weekend really happy and calming and full of kind of feel good hormones so so that was really nice that was kind of a like recovery from the the days before and then i woke up on the monday in early labor um so i was 40 plus 5 maybe 40 plus 4 i can't remember um <clears throat> and yeah yeah no yeah 40 plus 40 plus 4 on the monday and so i kind of spent all the all day on the Monday with niggly on and off early labor that was obviously doing something, but wasn't really escalating much over the course of the day. Like some contractions were really strong. I've got a few good pictures of Alex trying to get me to read him stories while I'm <laughs> having contractions at home and like leaning over the side of the bench. And I called my mum at some point to be like, I need, this is the, you know, this is the phone call you've been waiting for to, to come and look after Alex for my labor. So she came up and we were all kind of sorted and nothing was really escalating over the course of the day. Um, so we called my midwife in the evening and she said, okay, well, let's, let's bring you into delivery suite in the evening and just check you over because you have had a previous Caesar and we don't want you to kind of niggle away forever. I had to leave, leave Alex for, I think it was the first time that I'd really left him when I went into the hospital. So I left him with my mum when he was in the bath and he was happy as, and I was just like, a quivering mess in the car just because I was just so like so sad that I had to leave my firstborn to go and have my my second and yes yeah, so we, we went into the hospital and had to kind of stop in the hallway a couple of times to breathe through a few contractions and um my midwife ass like assessed me in in delivery suite and she was like eh, you're you're two centimeters like your cervix is still pretty thick and the baby's head's pretty high and I was like Frick! <laughs> Why? This is you know, again. I was supposed to be the birthing rock star and come in eight centimeters and have a baby and go home. Um, <laughs> but we kind of were like, okay, so we now have to think about what we're gonna what we're gonna do next. So she gave me a like a good stretch and sweep at that stage. Um, I had a speaker with me and I put on some you know good music in the room and I kind of wandered around and just kind of kept early laboring. We knew that my veins were really tricky, so we got kind of ahead of that early to try and figure out what we were going to do next um 
we call yeah my midwife tried and didn't didn't succeed and then we called one of the ICU doctors with his um, ultrasound and he tried a couple of times and didn't didn't succeed to get a line in and then so my husband tried <laughs> with the <laughs> with the ultrasound and he got two yeah. lines in so it's now his job for my support person in yeah. labor is to cannulate me as well <laughs> um and so yeah we kind of got to the point at that stage I got got my lines in I was kind of still laboring away still not really escalating um a couple of hours went by and she reassessed me and still not really any change so we kind of had the choice at that stage about what to do so the options were like just kind of keep going with early labor but stay in the hospital because it had been quite a while have some um some morphine and try and sleep or have my midwife break my waters and so we had to think about it and talk about it. And I didn't really want to have drugs at that stage. I didn't think I'd sleep without drugs either. So really that kind of left us with the option of, of having my waters broken. And I really just, at that stage, I just wanted to have a baby. <laughs> so she broke my waters. It was about 10 o'clock at night, two centimeters with a high baby and a long cervix. But everything increased really quickly once my waters were broken. So I was as mobile as I possibly could be. I didn't have a drip going this time, which was great. So I could be as mobile as I could within the limits of the monitor. So I was spent a lot of time on the Swiss ball and on the toilet and leaning over the back of the bed. Um, and remember, I remember saying to my husband at one stage, I was like, there's going to come a point in this labor that I'm going to tell you that I can't do this anymore and that I'm going to want to run away. And <laughs> at that stage, I need you to I need you to be my strength at that point and he was just kind of looked at me like I was a bit of a crazy person he was like okay that's fine (laughs) which was just kind of typical me really explaining labor to someone as it's happening to me and so it was around around midwife around midnight two hours later I was about five centimeters um cervix was fully effaced so it had thinned right out and baby was starting to come down and so that you know, I was officially in labor at midnight, which was great <laughs> after the whole day of kind of niggling away. Um, and I just kind of remember sitting there on the bed, like dozing off a little bit between contractions, just kind of being completely spaced out over, I think it was about, you know, about next hour, just being, yeah, only really half there. <laughs> yeah. Around, around quarter to one in the morning. I was starting to find things really intense. So I'd been using some of the techniques from the birth skills book of like adrenaline wanting you to move and trying to get like other sensations bigger than the pain. So I'd been moving my arms and my legs quite a lot. And I remember having like rubbing my heel up and down on the, um, on the bed um, just to try and get, get bigger than the pain because your brain can't process more than one. Yeah. sensation at a time so I was like right focus on this foot <laughs> and I remember getting to the point about quarter to, quarter to one where that wasn't working anymore and I wasn't able to kind of get bigger than get bigger than the pain any any longer and so I was just kind of sitting there just wriggling my foot and just the only way that I could get through was by just going ow for each each contraction and my husband was just like oh okay <laughs> like I, I wanted to try and avoid an epidural for the reason that I wanted to get home as quickly as I could, not because I was trying to be heroic at all, <laughs> but I wanted to try and 
get home as fast as I could to yeah. my little boy. Um, but at that stage I was kind of losing the plot. So I asked for some pain relief. Um, and it was at that stage that I was saying to my husband, I can't do this anymore. I just like, I can't keep going. I can't keep going. I need, I need to go. I just, I, I want, I want to leave. I just can't do this anymore. <laughs> and she, my midwife examined me and I was six to seven centimeters, still quite high. And I was like, right. So if this baby's still got a few hours to go till I'm 10 centimeters and who knows how long it's going to take me to push him out or her out. Cause it's going to be my first year pushed out baby. Then I'm going to need some pain relief. So I'll, I'll have an epidural please. <laughs> and so she, she went to get things ready. Um, asked the doctor to come in and have a look at the CTG because baby's heart rate was starting to have a few big dips. And so the doctor called the specialist just to kind of let him know that that was what was happening just in case, you know, there might need to be some assistance to have, have baby born if the heart rate wasn't looking too good. Um, <clears throat> and so he kind of said, okay, well I'll come in, um, see what's happening. And my midwife went out of the room to sort out the epidural. And when she left the room, I got the urge to push. And like now I can completely, completely understand what people mean by the urge to push because it is like it is primal and it is intense and it is kind of indescribable, but it is like overwhelmingly an urge that you must follow, <laughs> that your you know, your body is telling you exactly what it needs to do and you kind of need to need to do it and so I got the urge to push and my husband was like oh hell there's no one else in here <laughs> um <laughs> wife help please um <laughs> and so she she came back in and and examined me and this was I think 15 or 20 minutes after I was six to seven centimeters and now I was nine centimeters and baby had like plummeted down by a whole lot which kind of explained why the heart rate tracing had gone crappy um and also explained why I had felt that I needed to run away and that I couldn't do it anymore because I was going through transition, <laughs> which I didn't realize at the time until afterwards. I was like, oh, so that's what, what that means when people say, mm -hmm. I can't do this anymore. I've got to leave. I'm not going to, I'm just not going to do it. Um, so yeah, I was nine, nine centimeters and, and baby's heart rate was still not great. Um, but the boss was on the way in, so that was good. So if we needed help then he was coming but I had the surge to push so I just pushed <laughs> and obviously I'd never pushed a baby out before but the the I, I had this really strong memory of the birth skills book talking about pushing being like um using your diaphragm as a coffee mm. plunger to kind of take your breath and then use your diaphragm to do like a whole whole body push downwards and it like it bloody worked a treat <laughs> It really, really worked really well. Um, and I pushed her out in six wow. pushes. <laughs> um, and yeah, so my, my second stage of labor, the pushing stage was less yeah. than five minutes. Like the pressure is intense and the crown, like the crowning burning sensation is intense. And I didn't, I didn't really understand at that point that the burning I was feeling was my baby's head because it was mm -hmm. happening so fast. I thought it was my midwife's hands. I thought she was kind of, doing something to feel something somewhere and I thought it was her hands and I was trying to get her to move away because it hurt <laughs> but she was like it's your baby's head and I was like oh okay <laughs> and yeah so I I pushed her out at one one forty. so 
it was from when I was kind of officially in labor to when she was born was only was less than two hours um <laughs> and she was nine pounds yep, two ounces amazing. so she was a was a good size baby she was <laughs> she she's gonna probably hate me for saying this and sometime in her future but like she was simultaneously like the most beautiful and the ugliest <laughs> baby that I've ever seen because <laughs> she, she was like she was just quite big and like quite potato like like <laughs> she's like she's gorgeous now but she was she was just quite quite a <laughs> yeah, big potato yeah. baby um, <laughs> um and yeah and she just kind of flew out in the end yeah. Yeah, was she popped was up that? onto your chest for skin to skin from there? Yes, yes, she was. Yep, yep, she was. Um, which I was so thankful for because I missed out on yeah. the skin to skin at birth with Alex. Um, and so just that that feeling of like, like her birth was quite healing for me. Um, like even though it was a little bit overwhelming and like it, the fact that it was so fast once things actually got happening, and because, even like with the anxiety at the end of pregnancy, like her, her birth was quite healing. Um, we had that kind of golden hour of, of skin to skin, um, that was uninterrupted and that was, you know, just family only time. Like I had a few really superficial stitches that my boss did cause he kind of appeared as, as she had just been born. I was convinced that I'd like completely ruined <laughs> my body by the um, time that she'd flown out, but it was, really just superficial tearing that he he fixed up for me which was great but once he was done it was all just family time and it was quiet and I had my music going and it was yeah it was just really calm um like she didn't need any resuscitation and she didn't need any you know extra bits and pieces um so I gave her time to kind of find her own way to to the breast and got to feed her straight away and have big skin to skin snuggles with her straight away which was yeah, yeah exactly what I had needed after yeah. the the way that Alex's birth had gone like it it wasn't Alex's birth wasn't traumatic for me because I knew what was happening as we were mm. as it was happening um even though some some people I think would find what happened with Alex yeah. quite yeah. traumatic um but I was kind of included and empowered throughout his birth. So it wasn't a trauma, even though it was, yeah. was scary, but still, still within that Lucy's birth was, was the kind of the healing that I needed. And she was actually born on the one year anniversary oh, wow. of the loss of the baby that we'd had yeah. the year before. So she was, yeah, now beautiful healing yeah. rainbow baby. And yeah, she was, she was perfect. Yeah, awesome. And how long did you spend in the hospital before you went home with Lucy? Um, she was born at one one forty in the morning and I left the hospital <laughs> at eight in the morning. <laughs> so we were out of there. So Matt went home for a couple of hours of sleep um, and then came back to pick me up um, in the morning once he'd had a little bit of a nap. Um, and then we, we took her home and introduced her to her I'm quite reluctant at that stage, big brother. Um, it was just kind of like, yeah. what has happened? Like I was in the bath with Gran and then I went to bed and yeah. now I'm awake and you've brought home a baby. Like what yeah. is going on? <laughs> um, so yeah, that was like it, from, from that side of things, things went exactly as I had hoped and that I, you know, I didn't need 
to stay in hospital and I could bring her home yeah. straight away. And we didn't have to return to hospital with her either, which was great. Like I still had trouble with some of the breastfeeding stuff with her, um, but nowhere near to the extent that I had with Alex. So I think with Alex, there was a lot of breastfeeding, I might even use the word trauma, breastfeeding trauma that was probably caused by factors outside sure, of my yeah. control. Um, but with, yeah, with Lucy, I didn't need to have her having any kind of top ups of formula yeah. from a few hours old and she was well and, and healthy and didn't have the kind of the late preterm low blood sugars yeah. or any of the jaundice or any of that stuff. So she could just kind of focus on learning how to feed. Um, I did still have problems with low milk supply, um, but not nearly to the extent that yeah. I had with Alex. So I had much more milk with Lucy and I was actually for her able to find donor oh, cool. breast milk to feed her for her top ups as well. Like I'd had a couple of friends that had babies in the month or so before um, yeah. Lucy was born. So there was yeah, a couple of them had colostrum <laughs> in their freezers that they could, could give me for her early days, um, which was awesome. So I was able to keep her on breast milk um, until she yeah. started solids, which was a big um, a big goal yeah, for me yeah. really just to tr like again again try to heal some of that um that grief that I had from my breastfeeding journey with Alex just yeah she she's brought a lot of a lot of healing to my my life that little girl <laughs> yeah amazing and how did you find your physical recovery from this birth obviously quite different um birth experience to your first yeah, diff obviously quite different from the cesarean side of things. Um, so even though it was just a small kind of superficial tear that I had stitched, it was sore. Mm. <laughs> um, and just trying to learn how to move with, um, with having stitches as well was a, just a different kind of experience. But apart from, apart from the stitches, everything else was, was fine. Like I did have more problems with like when my milk came in with Lucy with engorgement yeah. and stuff that I didn't have with Alex. So that was a, like a new challenge to try and figure yeah. out as well. I was quite, yeah, was quite lucky in that everything went so well with her birth that I could just take the time just to focus on, on her and learning, learning her and learning how to be a new family of four rather than having big physical um, recoveries yeah. to do for myself. Yeah. Awesome. And I know that you mentioned in your email that you co-slept with Lucy. I'm not sure if you did with Alex as well. Mm. But do you want to talk us through yeah. that just before we close up? Yeah. So for both, both babies, I had a, um, like a co-sleeper bassinet that was attached to the side of yeah. our bed. Um, Alex was really happy to sleep mm. in it. <laughs> and so like when he'd been in the hospital, he'd been like he spent quite a lot of time in the little yeah. clear sided bassinet in the hospital wrapped up and snuggled on his billy blanket and stuff. And so when we got home, he was pretty happy to be um, wrapped up and in, in, in his bassinet beside my bed. And it was really good having him like mm. immediately beside me because I could just you know, easily feed him um, at nighttime and know that he was kind of right there, which was really good for a, a first time mum. With Lucy, she was having none of the whole idea of being yeah. <laughs> the best in it, which was surprised me because I was like, it's like, you're literally right there, baby. Yeah. Why will you not go to sleep? Like you're right beside me. So she, she wanted to be even closer than that 
to work to to my body um which like it was it was hard to try and get my head around that at first because there's so much mm. kind of teaching and information out there about bed sharing and about how you should you know yeah. avoid it at all costs but if you look a bit deeper into a lot of a lot of it a lot of the information out there then there are ways to make it safer and a lot of families will bed share even though they haven't mm. planned on doing it so having the kind of the information and the knowledge out there to to do it safely if it's going to happen is really important because the last thing people want to end up with is not mm. doing it safely because you don't look for the information or because you think that it will be safer to sleep with your baby on the couch than it will be to sleep with them on your bed. So I did a bit of bit of reading and it was like the first night that Lucy was alive because I was like, oh my God, she's not going to go to sleep unless she's like right beside me. So I'll have <laughs> to figure out how to make this safe for her. And yeah, our bed was already pretty firm and was safe and it had the, and that it had the, um, bassinet on one side so she couldn't kind of fall out and so I just made sure that we had no no blankets up near her face um and that my bedding was suitable um and my clothing was suitable for sleeping beside her and so she yeah she's she shared a bed with me from the first <laughs> night that she she was alive and I think that's also part of the reason why my milk yeah. supply was better with her was because she she fed yeah a lot at night time for the first few months particularly because she was in bed with me and I just lie on my yeah. side and feed her at night time which was yeah also yeah. really lovely but yeah hard hard thing to try and make fit in my brain yeah. at the start because I was like oh I'm a doctor I'm not supposed to do these things and actually if you look a little bit a little bit further and talk to a few doctors, you'll find that a lot of us are much more, I'm going to say crunchy, no, also crunchy, <laughs> much more crunchy than you'd think. So a lot of us will, will be cheer with our babies and yeah. breastfeed for long, often for long periods of time and wear our babies and do cloth nappies and you know, avoid yeah. sleep training and all those things that you'd not always associate with kind yeah. of medical <laughs> crowds, but yeah, I was <laughs> quite quite pleased with how that all yeah. all panned out. And yeah, she she ended up sharing sharing a bed with me for like a good few months before we could kind of slowly edge <laughs> her sideways into um into a cot that we put up yeah. against the side of the bed. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. I've really loved listening to your experiences, oh, no and I think yeah, you've shared some awesome information. So thank you so much for joining me. Another huge thank you to Temple & Co for sponsoring this episode of Kiwi Birth Tales. I really appreciate your support and yeah, super grateful to you for coming on board. So thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Kiwi Birth Tales podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. I'd love to hear your feedback. So either leave a review on the podcast app that you're listening on or head to our Instagram at Kiwi Birth Tales and leave a comment there. If you're interested in sharing your birth tale, then please head to the Instagram page and use the email link to get in touch. Thanks again for listening. I really look forward to sharing the next episode with you. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.